0: Well, Good morning again to everyone here. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, Again, my name is Dion, and we are in week five, our final week of the series Clean Slate. Uh, I've loved this series. I hope you've loved it too. It's not that it's easy um, stuff, but I think it's really life-changing stuff. And I think today is no exception. I think it's such an important message for us. Today, uh, you know, this week, just to start off this way, this week, I was talking to Chris Toomey, who was up here just a minute ago with me. And uh, some of you know that Chris, before he came here, he had worked in ministry years ago, but most recently, he was a coach at a university. He was a, 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 women's, a woman's volleyball coach. And uh, really a successful coach, actually from a line of successful coaches. His mom was, uh, was an incredible coach and had, a, had an amazing record, was one of the most winning coaches in, in their, uh, their whole conference or division. And, uh, and so we were talking a little bit about recruiting and uh, you know, the, the difficulties of recruiting and, and the secrets of recruiting. And he started to talk about how when it came to recruiting... He got really good at being able to tell which players would would be the players who would you know, would be able to push through injuries and overcome them, and those who would get sidelined by injuries that would nag them for a season. He would be able to tell which players were people who um, would, would push through in training and those who would stop short. Those who would get lots of playing time would be the starters, and those who uh, would probably sit the, be- sit the bench. And he began to describe this, and he said it actually had little to do with athletic ability, and that's only because... He's dealing with all great athletes at this level when he's recruiting them. They were all good athletes. He said the difference, the difference, well, hold on a second and I'll tell you what the difference was. Uh, Steve Howard, welcome back, Steve. Uh, you've been gone for a few weeks. He'll be up here next week. But Steve Howard, one of our other teaching pastors and our resident historian here at St. John, um, he's enlightened me over the years, over the eight years that we've worked together to a lot in history. I've heard him talk about, about uh, great generals, commanders like Ulysses Grant. And uh, John Pope, that's Grant over there on that side, Pope on that side. And, uh, you know, both these men, gifted commanders, both West Point trained, both highly intelligent, both very respected, and yet Pope was a disaster and Grant was a great success. Historians argue a little bit about this, but, but uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who say the key difference, again, wait for it. Uh, or what about Winston Churchill? Some of you know Winston Churchill over here on, the, on, on your left. Um, on the right is Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain was the prime minister who, who preceded Winston Churchill. He actually saw the beginning of World War II was in position about eight months before he stepped down and Churchill took over. Again, both very intelligent, gifted, powerful men. But uh, Chamberlain would have been a disaster. He was a disaster as prime minister during that season. Churchill, of course, was the one who led, led the UK through, uh, through World War II, withstood the Nazis when so many other nations in Europe fell. If you ever watch them speak, you might be able to detect the important but subtle difference between the two men. In fact, I've got a snippet of, of speeches from each of them. Take a look at this. have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Sure I am that this day, now, we are the masters of our fate, that the task which has been set us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. As long as we have faith in our cause and uh, an unconquerable willpower, Salvation will not be denied us. In the words of the psalmist, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. I don't know if you can tell the difference, but but give me one more. Uh, In the business world, in the corporate world, I was reflecting on one of my favorite tech companies, uh, Apple. I talk about them from time to time. I think they're pretty fascinating. And I was thinking about all of the tech giants who have uh risen and fallen over the 40 years or so that Apple has been around think of companies like like uh, Tandy and Commodore some of those early computer companies some of you owned those computers or you can think about Yahoo who recently has uh has been bought out and and uh, gone out a different name entirely for Yahoo a Blackberry was you know the, the device if you were a corporate person, getting email, staying connected outside of your office, a uh, BlackBerry has fallen. I was thinking about the difference, in, and the difference isn't just about innovation or a charismatic leader. The difference in all of these things, I believe, is attitude. Attitude, it's, it's what makes great championship players and those who sit the bench it's the difference between grant who was a humble goal-oriented non uh you know just not gonna back down kind of general versus pope who was arrogant and boastful and loud and brash a lot of bravado a little bit you know not enough backup it was the difference between churchill and chamberlain churchill's resolute stance that we will never give up we will never quit We have it within our power to defeat this great threat against us. It's the attitude of Apple that said, you know, competitors are people we will learn from and we will study them and, and we will not insulate ourselves from competition, but instead we'll use them to make us better. It's about attitude. It's about attitude. Now, lots have been said about attitude, but I think we consistently underrate the power of attitude. I know that's true in my own life. In fact, it was Winston Churchill who said that attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. And I believe that's true. In fact, I believe that's true of everything that we've talked about in this series. If you've been with us from the beginning, we've talked about a lot of little things that make a big difference. Uh, week one, we talked about how God gives us a clean slate. And that's a little thing, but it's a powerful, life-changing thing. If you just realize that not just at the beginning of a new year, but, but each and every day. In fact, today is a new day for you. And today is the day that God wants to give you a clean slate. That he wants to forgive your sins, he wants to remove them from you, he wants to erase your failures, he wants to erase your disappointments, whatever you have been, he wants to erase that and give you a chance to be something new today. It's a little thing that makes a big difference. Or in week two, we talked about clarifying your priorities, remember we talked about understanding what your why is, not just the what and the how of your life, but really getting a hold of your why and rebuilding your life around it. Week three, we talked about decelerating your mind. How life gets crazy and you can't make the world slow down. You just can't. But you can slow yourself down. You can decelerate your mind. We talked about three phrases. Uh, Remember we talked about retreat, be still. Anyone remember the third one? Hallelujah, someone remembers that. That's good. I I didn't have to remember. I had to look at my notes. Uh, Just kidding. No, I remembered it. Uh, So yeah, retreat, be still, and connect. How ultimately if we pull away, if we can still ourselves and then connect with God, that's the key to surviving in the middle of a crazy world. We saw that from Jesus. Week four, we talked about simplifying our surroundings. We had some clutter over here. And we talked about not how possessions are bad, but how to get a right relationship with our possessions. How, How to make sure that we're putting the right kinds of expectations on them so they can actually bring us joy. And I gave you some tips that that you might need to employ in your life, that maybe you need to set a budget or downsize or stop replacing things, or maybe even find a new group of friends who can help you live this out. All of those are little things, but they make a big difference if you can learn to embrace them and live them out. And I think today's message is no different as we talk about refocusing your attitude. But here's what I know. We, we constantly underrate, we underestimate the power of attitude in life, I know I do When I look at life and I don't like the way it's going I, I can pinpoint a million different causes I can talk about my circumstances I can, I can look at my behaviors and scrutinize them I can look at the people around me And how they maybe have let me down I, I can look at all kinds of things but, but whenever we do that, when we neglect the power of attitude We're beginning in the wrong place In fact, I want to show you something today I want to show you the words of Paul In his letter to the Romans, chapter 12 We're going to examine uh, a good section of this chapter today. And um, this chapter, I know, is a favorite, Romans 12 is a favorite, specifically of men's groups to study. Now, uh, if if you're a guy and you've been in a men's group for some time, there's a good chance that maybe you've studied Romans 12. It 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 is a beloved section of scripture to study. And here's why men especially love Romans 12. Because when it comes to spiritual growth, men, we're kind of masochists. We like spiritual growth to be painful, right? We want to come to a Bible study or a men's retreat. If you've ever been to a men's retreat, guys, uh, or women, if you've ever seen a men's retreat, it's like, hit me harder, make me hurt, right? It's the only way we know how to, how to grow. It's like, you know, shame me, beat me, whatever, and, and, then I, and then I'll try to do better. It's just how guys are kind of wired. Now, I know women don't work this way. I've been a part of women's retreats before as a speaker. It's a very different environment. You can't bring men's retreat tactics into a women's retreat because they will first maybe cry, and then they will hurt you uh, if you try to do that. And man, it just seems to make us better. It's how it's how we're wired. And so in Romans 12, there are all of these, there is this, this whole list of things that we should do, that we can do better, a whole list of behaviors and, and, uh, and, and traits that we as people should have. And, and men love this stuff. We eat this stuff up. But um, as we look at these verses today, I, I think that sometimes we may be... When we start at verse 9, beginning in the wrong place. I'm going to go through this really quickly. I want you to look at this with me. So uh, Romans 12, starting at verse 9. says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient, oh gosh, patient, patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Hear that guys, no cursing. Uh, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be proud. Do not be willing to... uh, but be willing, rather, to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Not conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. No revenge. Okay? Okay? Uh, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No, I know that's a lot. It's exhausting, right? Guys love this stuff. But uh, you can see I wrote some of the words up here, just key words up here that, that, uh, that come out from the chapter. And if you were to grade yourself on your ability to do these things, if you're just to look at your life for a minute... and you were to to judge yourself, grade yourself on the basis of your ability to keep this criteria, your ability to to love and to honor others and to be devoted and to to delight in what's good and not to show revenge and not to be conceited and to be patient and peaceful and all that other stuff, if you were to give yourself a grade right now, what grade would you give yourself? Any A students out there? Liars, right? Yeah, no, no, you're not going to give yourself an A on all that. There's too much. Uh, You know, B students, C students, any D students, any F students, anyone just going to say, can I take an audit? On this class, I don't want to get a grade for that. See, often in life, when we look at our lives, and you know that's what the series is about, we look at the state of our lives, we look at all of these things that we're doing well or we're not doing well, we tend to get overly critical of all of these things. Here's what I want to tell you, that if we begin here in looking at our lives and trying to get our lives together, we're beginning in the wrong place. See, all of these things, they're symptoms, they're symptoms of something greater. In fact, the root cause of these things is something much deeper than just behavior. If, if we start at verse nine of Romans and we read it and, and we say, okay, I gotta do better. I gotta be more devoted. I've gotta try harder. I've gotta work better or work harder or more diligently at being good. I've gotta be hospitable. I've, I've gotta keep my stuff together and be more patient. If, if we just start there and then we try to fix behavior, we're starting in the wrong place and we'll never, we're never gonna get to the place. We're never gonna get the life that we actually want to live, Instead, we have to start at the beginning. At the beginning of Romans 12. See, before Paul gets into this laundry list of all these things we should be and, and do, he starts off with something that is, that is so powerful, something that we have to listen to. It's uh, transformative. I want to look at verse 1 and 2, the very beginning of Romans 12. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... See, when you start at the beginning, you realize that what Paul is doing is he's not actually calling us to attack and change all of those behaviors one by one by one. Instead, what is this a call to do? This is a call to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, or as I'll call it today, it's a call to refocus your attitude, because your attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. See, when my perspective is right, when my view of the world is right, When my attitude is right, that shapes my behavior. That changes all of the things that I do. When my attitude is right. And what often happens to us is is that we let our attitudes get hijacked. We let our attitudes get conformed to the pattern of this world. We start to think and, 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 and and then by extension act like the world does. Because first, we let our attitudes be conformed. See, this has never been truer probably than than today, living in the world that we're living in. I mean, just just think about the prevailing attitude of our culture. I mean, you can can think about headlines on your newspaper or what you watch on TV or what's in your newsfeed on Twitter. I mean, you look at the attitude of our culture, and what is the attitude? The attitude is, we are doomed. The sky is falling. Everything's going to be terrible. Our best days are behind us. People are awful. Everyone is lying to you. Everyone is trying to get over on you. You've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to fight back. Or otherwise, you know, if you don't kill first, you'll be killed. If you don't eat, you'll be eaten. I could go on, but you get enough of that all week long, right? See, see, that's the attitude of the world. That's the way the world looks at things. That's how the world... Things and if you conform to this view of life, if if you let that become your attitude, if you let it influence your attitude, this prevailing attitude out there, then it will infect the rest of your life. But on the other hand, on the other hand, if you can get your attitude right, if you can get your attitude right, then the battle is at least half won because it's not about our behavior first and foremost. If you start at verse 9, it looks like it is. But if you start at the top of the chapter, verse 1, you realize it's about something much bigger, a little thing that makes a big difference. Your attitude has the potential to transform your life. And so today, as I look through Romans 12, I I actually have discovered what I think are three prevailing attitudes that Paul had, the writer of these words, three prevailing attitudes that are so different than the attitude of our culture right now. But I believe that if you can embrace these three attitudes instead of being conformed to the pattern of the world, if you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind and, and you can embrace these attitudes, I believe these things will be life-changing for you. I believe they'll transform your relationships. They will give you joy. They will even change how you behave. That long list starting at verse 9. Three attitudes that if you can embrace will make a dramatic difference in your life. Anyone ready for these? Anybody? Come on now, right? All right. All right, so I, I'm going to start off this way. I, I want to label this whole list, because we're talking about attitude, I want to label this whole list uh, with the phrase, live like, okay? And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about attitude. We want to live like. And the first thing, the first attitude that I'll share that I see deeply woven into these words from Romans 12 is live like there's plenty. Live like there's plenty. Sorry, I'm messing up there. Live like there's plenty. Now, the reality is we don't live this way, do we? Like there's plenty. Uh, we live with a scarcity mindset. You know, you wake up most days and your first thought is, "Ah, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. There's not enough time. Um, you know, you turn on the TV, look, there's not enough jobs, not enough good paying a job, there's not enough security, there's not enough safety in our world with your relationships there's not enough of your loved ones attention uh, at work there's not enough of the boss's time at school there's not enough playing time there's not enough scholarship money over and over again we we, we hear these messages we believe this message is there's not enough there's not enough there's not enough and when you live long enough with a scarcity mindset, do you know what happens? Not only do you, do you begin to see the world that way and, and that changes your behavior. And if there's not enough, then, then man, I gotta get in there. I gotta get mine before someone else gets theirs and takes mine. And, and it changes all of the stuff that Paul talks about later on in Romans. But not only that, you know what happens when, when you see the world through a scarcity attitude? When you don't live like there's plenty? Pretty soon you start to see yourself that way. And, and it's not just, there's not enough. You start to look in the mirror and you start to say, I am not enough. And you live your life with an inadequacy or or scarcity mindset. But I want you to contrast that with how Paul lived. Now, Paul didn't live an easy life. If you know anything about Paul's life, he he had a lot of bad things happen to him. He went through times of hunger and need. And yet, and yet he's a guy who consistently lives like there's plenty. Look at what he says in Romans 12 at some of these words again. Verse 13, he says, share with the Lord's people. Uh, who are in need. Practice hospitality. In verse 20, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. But, but there's not enough. You know, I, I might give my friends or my family something to eat or drink, but my enemy? Uh, so Paul's saying, you know what? It's okay, you can do that because there's actually plenty. See, don't we have every reason to believe that there's plenty with a God like ours? I, I know the messages of the world are like, no, there's not enough. There's not enough. Scarcity, scarcity. You're not enough. There's not enough. But but, but if you're a person of faith, if, if you follow Jesus, don't we have every reason in the world to believe that there's plenty? Knowing that we have a God like ours who promises over and over again that he will provide all we need. When we see time and time again that he's a God who never fails, who loves us so, you know, like we sing about today, don't we have every reason to believe that there's plenty? And yet, how often do we live like it? How often do we live like there is plenty because we have a God who can richly provide everything that we need. He, he owns uh, uh, the, the cattle on a thousand hillsides. He owns all the gold in the world. I mean, he's got everything that he needs to provide for us, and so we will never lack anything. See, this is a powerful attitude to have it'll change your life it'll change your whole mindset and it's not just good for others but it's ultimately good for you uh booker t washington i told you i'm totally channeling steve howard today right (laughs) giving you churchill and booker t washington Uh, booker t washington once said this he said the happiest people are those who do the most for others and the most miserable are those who do the least so your happiness is directly tied to this attitude you can't do a lot for others if you, if you live in a world of scarcity. But when you believe that with a God like ours, there's plenty, and you can do a lot of good for others, then you will truly be happy. You will be blessed. This is a life-changing attitude. And when you, when you claim it, when you live like it's true, live like there's plenty, man, you'll do a lot of good for others, but you'll discover true happiness. The second one, so we're going to live like there's plenty. The second one is live like mercy... Is power. Live like mercy is power. See, again, I I don't think we live like this is true. In fact, (laughs) I think a lot of us struggle, maybe especially men, but I think all of us. uh, We live like mercy is weakness. We live like mercy is wimpy. And that's why if you go into our workplaces or our schools or even our homes, mercy is in short, short supply. It's even true in the church, right? See, I've observed something disturbing over the last decade or so as Christianity has lost some of its influence and you know, people come to church less and, and we're less uh, tied into the political powers and, and we're feeling a little marginalized, we're feeling a little diminished. In other words, we feel like our power is being taken away as Christians in this country. I've observed something disturbing. I've watched that, I've watched as, I should say, i should, I watched as Christians and even Christian leaders like myself as we start to lose power, I've watched us become not more merciful. But I've watched us resort to the to the sources of power that that other people in the world resort to. So we've tried to speak louder and puff our chests and to be intimidating. We've we've tried to organize and protest. We've tried to threaten and raise our voices. We've we've gotten, you know, fierce and angry and it's a sign that we don't really believe that mercy is power. Otherwise, in these days when we're losing our influence, we would say, okay, I guess we just have to be more merciful. But my guess is right now in your heart, you're challenged by this. You're objecting to this. And I get it, me too. It doesn't seem so often like mercy is power, and yet it is. See, this is a life changing attitude. And, and I would just point you to your relationship with Jesus. Again, if you're a Christ follower, if that's you, if you're not, that's okay. We, we invite you back and just keep checking into this. But if you're a Christ follower, I want to ask you today, what is it about Jesus that draws you to him? Is it his miracles? I mean, for some people in, in his days on earth, that was it. He was a miracle worker and that's why they followed him around. Is that it for you? Is it, is it his wisdom? Was it his power over nature? Or is it his mercy? Is it that you have seen firsthand that, uh, that, that the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy of God can melt a hardened heart and change a life? What is it that draws you to Jesus? See, I think for a lot of us, if, if we really examine our lives, what keeps us coming back is that there's no one like him. There's no one who shows mercy like he does. There is no one... Who is so patient, no one who is willing to put up with us and not give up on us and not shame us for our failures. There's someone who just sits there with arms wide open all the time and says, come back to me. It's okay. I'll restore you. I'll fill you. I love you. I mean, isn't that what draws you to Jesus? See, mercy is the most powerful force in the universe. And yet we don't always live like it's true. To this day, I'm convinced and some of you have heard the story of, of my dad and how he was not a man who believed, who was kind of antagonistic to the faith, and, and yet he came to trust in Jesus and still does. And, and I'm convinced that part of the reason he was able to do that was because he had a person in his life, he had my mom in his life, who believed this. And she just kept showing him mercy day after day. And, and uh, frankly, there are a lot of people in my family, um, a lot of people in our lives who, who looked at her and just said, you're a fool, you're weak, you're a doormat. But I think deep down she knew that, that there's true power in mercy. And so she showed him mercy over and over and over again, even though he didn't deserve it, because that's what mercy is, right? It's not what you deserve. It's being treated not as your sins deserve. And, uh, and, and eventually, I think what happened for him is that when he heard the gospel in a new way, he could actually believe that God could forgive him because he had someone in his life who had been doing that for 20 years. See, If we can live like mercy is power, if we can get into touch in, in touch with the fact that, that it's God's mercy that has transformed us, it's God's mercy that motivates us, it's, it's God's love and grace and forgiveness that is, that is heart-changing and world-changing and life-changing for us, if we can start to embrace that and live that, not only are we able then to, to live differently, but we're able to live lighter. So we're able to do all the things that Paul talks about in, in the rest of Romans, this impossible stuff where he says, bless those who persecute you. Really? Uh, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. We can do that. We can do the rest of it. Live in harmony with one another. We can swallow our pride. We can do the rest. We can not repay evil for evil. I mean, how hard is that? How hard is that to do? And yet, if you believe that mercy is power, not weakness, you can do that. And not only change the lives of people around you. It can change our world, but it'll change your life. Third, so we're going to live like there's plenty. We're going to live like mercy is power. And then we're going to live like... God is with us and for us. I'm not going to miss these squeaky markers. okay? Um, that God is with us and for us. You know, when Jesus came down, it was, it was, uh, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. And some of you, you're kind of aware of that, that God is with you, that he's watching over you, and he's, he's always present. But that's not a comforting thought for you. You kind of imagine him like Elf on the Shelf, noticing all of the things that you're doing and keeping track, right? Writing it down, and someday you're going to have to give an account. For some of us, that's what we think when we think God is with us. Like, oh my gosh, he's always with us. He's watching me. That's why that second part is important, that God is not only with us, but he's for us. See, I think this is life-changing to know that God is here, he's present, but he's for us. He's on our side. He's fighting for us. He's fighting for everything that we need so we don't have to fight. See, see, I know that we don't believe this. That's why we get anxious. That's why we get fearful. That's why we become overwhelmed and angry. That's why we try to carry burdens that we cannot carry on our own. And that's why we fall into a whole bunch of lists of negative behaviors that Paul talks about in Romans 12. Because we don't really live like God is with us, that he's present And that he's for us. When things get tough, when life is hard, when circumstances move against us, our first thought so often, at least in my life, is, God, where are you? Are you not with me? Or, God, have I done something wrong? Or have I displeased you? Are you no longer for me? And when you let your attitude go that way, then life's going to be a struggle. You know, I, I think about Paul again. If anyone had reason to doubt that God was with him and for him, it was Paul. There's one time where he's traveling around the world, preaching the gospel, trying to, trying to do good things for God, and, and uh, he ends up shipwrecked. And then after the shipwreck, they're they're on this island and and they you know make a fire, they're trying to draw uh, dry out, and they've just been through this life-threatening thing, and, and then a snake comes out of the firewood and bites him. <laughs> where are you, God? You know, here I am trying to serve you. Are you no longer with me? Are you no longer for me? And yet Paul chose to live. He chose to live with an attitude that God was always with him and God was for him. And that meant all the difference to him. And In fact, in verse 19, that's why he could say, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It enabled Paul to live just, you know, like, hey, God's got this. And whatever injustice comes against me, whatever wrong comes against me, God's going to sort it out. And whatever hardship I face, God's with me and he's in my corner and he's fighting for me. Again, I, I believe when you just don't know that, but when you live like that, it'll change your life. Uh, I, I remember um, one of my favorite stories in our Inspired weekend, some of you know we do these weekends called Inspired once a year, and we just share stories of life change, ways that God is working in people's lives. One of my favorites is uh, about a woman named Denise, and um, she, was, she was leading a major Bible study, and they were studying Exodus, and she came across this prayer from Moses, where Moses uh, cried out to God and said, God, show me your glory. And she thought, you know, that's, that's an amazing prayer. I want to see more of God's glory. And so she committed to, start trying to starting to pray that. And so she started praying, you know, every day, God, God, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory. And a short time later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, her response to that wasn't, God, where are you? Have you left me? Her response to that was, okay, God, I guess this is how you're going to show me your glory. See, if if you want a life-changing attitude that will enable you to look at your cancer diagnosis or your job loss or that betrayal that you are enduring or political turmoil that's all around us or even the loss of a loved one, if if you want to have something that will help you look at all of those situations, go through those situations and be okay, it's this, it's living like God is with us. That he's made a promise to us on the cross that we are not, we are not alone alone that we are not abandoned, we are not forgotten, and that he is for us, that he is fighting for us. That we don't have to do this on our own. We don't have to fight our own battles. He's on our side. He's in our corner. We can relax. We can trust. We can surrender and know that it's all going to be okay. A few weeks ago, we talked about Viktor Frankl, psychologist and concentration camp survivor. And one of his uh, favorite quotes that I just love is, is about this very thing. He says, The last of human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. No matter what is taken away from you, you've got the power, and especially those of us who live by the Spirit of God, we have the power to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances. I believe that's true. And so today I would encourage you to live differently, to not underestimate the power of attitude. Instead, to live like there's plenty There's always enough with a God like ours, we don't have to live with a scarcity mindset. To live like mercy is power. And so when when you're up against it, when you feel diminished or defeated, to show mercy. When all else fails, show mercy. And then to believe that God is with us and for us. And when you do, I believe that will change not just your life, but I believe these attitudes have the power to transform our world. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that these things are true. I thank you that there's truly plenty. Father, that you've made this world for us and you consistently provide for us. And I know in some places of the world, people are lacking and and yet the reality is, Father, the reality is when we look to you, there, there is enough, there is enough. Give us that mindset. Help us live like that's true. Father, I thank you that mercy is so powerful and that that's what's won us over here in this place. Father, give us us confidence in the power of mercy. Help us resist jumping to all of the other things the world says is powerful. And and, and Father, just help us to follow your example that, that to change the world, you did it in an act of mercy, an act of sacrifice through your son. Help us live like that's true. Father, I thank you that you're with us, that you sent your son into this world and you put on human flesh and that even still today, Jesus is in flesh, that he he is like us, he is one with us. We have solidarity with you. Father, remind us that you're not only with us, but that you're for us and help us live like that's true. So no matter what comes against us, no matter what circumstances in life threaten us, we remember and we live like You love us, and you're for us. Father, I know that today, if you just begin to do a new work in us, if you begin to transform us by the renewing of our mind, if you help us not conform to the attitudes and the patterns of this world, that that could be so freedom-giving, and I pray that you would help us. Help us do whatever necessary, tangible things we need to do, but Father, by your Spirit, just keep turning our attitudes over to these things, so that we might know your fullness and so that we might bring fullness to the world around us. I pray it in Jesus. Amen.